Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. There's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side, and the truth. should withdraw that, and if you don't, we will have to do it on the floor of the Senate. We're going to fight for those Australians who haven't got the time to go around and get on Twitter and wear t-shirts. The kids who are sick cannot do the hip-hop anymore. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. G'day and welcome to The Curb. My name's Andrew Pearce and this is a podcast that's all about culture, unity, reviews and banter. This podcast is proudly recorded in the lands of the Wajak people of Perth region and I pay respects to their elders both past, present and emerging. On this episode, I catch up with Michael Wilkins and Amanda Gibson to talk about their documentary, Homefront, which is screening at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival on July 20th at 2pm. Head over to the website mdff.org.au to find out more details and to purchase tickets. This is a long interview, so I'm just going to jump straight into it. Uh, But again, head over to that website, purchase tickets, and check out this film, Homefront, as well as check out the other documentary that Amanda is, is associated with, which is Forged by Fire. Both of them dealing with similar subjects, but uh, covering very, very interesting, fascinating stories about Australia and well worth your time. The uh, the sculptures themselves are really spectacular. I'm I'm in awe of you know the the scope of that project and what you went through to actually get all of that done. Like it's it's crazy when when you're presented with that kind of project. What's your first uh, What's your first thought and and your immediate um, uh, reaction this is the home to it? Project. Um, um, yeah, for Homefront. Yeah. I guess I guess my my first thought, and I guess because I come from a design background, so I'm, um, I'm trained as a designer. Um, so I design graphics, but I also design public art, and I work with blacksmiths. So I design sculpture. So I guess the first thing I do is, is to try and try and work out what the what the issue and what the problem was. And the problem with this um, with this, with this project is you had a series of sculptures that had been carved 14 years previously that were incredibly beloved by the local community that had been done by a very well-known local artist who, and, and Larrikin, 
who was also very loved by the local community. Um, that that was that was Lee Conkey, who you've seen in the documentary. He's a hoot. Um, and basically, the job was we had to destroy a, war, a series of war memorial figures and not upset the community. And that that was the the biggest issue that that we had to sort out. Um, and the way we got around it was um, was a number of things. We we had to let people know, um, and we, we had to make a decision on what we wanted to do with them. And we just thought, well, what's the most respectful thing we can do? Because to to leave them to rot was disrespectful. To cut them off at the base and just dump them in storage was disrespectful. Even to give them away to people because they just would have rotted in someone's garden. They were <clears throat> actually because they 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 were tr existing trees and they hadn't been cut off from the base. Um, the the roots had sort of wicked all the moisture up from you know into the centre of the sculptures. So it wasn't the elements from the outside; it was actually the the rotten moisture um, from the inside. So in some places, in some of them, it's just the varnish holding them together. So they're incredibly fragile, and just we just couldn't save them. So um, we thought that perhaps a ceremonial fire would be the best solution. And we sat down with um, the veteran liaison officer from um, Often Health and talked to him about how he felt and, and, and he got us in, in touch with some, some war veterans and we spoke to them about their thoughts. Uh, we spoke to um, the local RSL club um, and we also spoke to a few, um, a few people. So we had a launch, we launched the project and we had chainsaw, the chainsaw carvers and the blacksmiths actually working in the park and we just had like a little Devonshire tea and it was like a, here's, here's the project, let's have a chat about it kind of thing. Um, and then we got um, a local writer, Neil Grant, um, to, um, to run a couple of writing workshops. So um, Neil Grant's a local, a local writer and has taught writing and um, he ran a couple of writing workshops, one for the local community and only a couple of people came and that was fine. And we wanted them to write their thoughts on the park and their favourite sculptures. So from the community, we got um, their stories of their favourite sculptures. We interviewed people as they were crossing through the path when we were working in, in there. Um, and we got some feedback from our, our launch day um, and also at the ceremonial fire. Um, so we, we kind of found out that um, people walk their dogs in the park, they, they take their kids to see the sculptures, the, we had to have a dog, everyone loved the dog, so we had to have another dog, everyone loved the nurse, so we had to have another World War I nurse. Um, so that's what we learned from the community. Um, I'll, I'll get to the ceremonial fire, but, and from the, the veterans, they were, they were just like, they just wanted it to be respectful. So that was, and, and community wanted us to use Lee Conkey, which was great. So, so that's the information. So we, it was mainly information gathering. Um, and then we had the ceremonial fire where we asked war veterans to light. We, we made a huge sculpture, you saw it. And this is when Mike came in because Mike was, um, Mike was a friend of um, Colin who worked in arts and culture. Um, and Mike, Mike had, yeah, Colin said, there's, there's going to be an amazing fire. Can you just film it? 
And that was the beginning of, of the documentary. Oh, no, 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 actually, that's wrong. I begged Is him it? to film it. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I did not know that. Because I've got this thing about fire. Just, I love it. There's something, yeah, yeah, primeval about fire. And I just went, do you mind if I come along and film it? And that was how I got involved in that, the project. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so the council didn't commission a documentary, but Mike's filming of the ceremonial fire was so amazing um, that that... They they were really really happy for him to continue filming and and start to tell the story of the creation of the sculptures and and also you know interview the war veterans which was another incredible thing as well um, but I think from from the ceremonial fire um, I'd I'd done I'd, I'd done some basic designs based on the writing workshops so for the stories from the veterans I started to illustrate in in figures and base those figures on the stories from the veterans and we had those on display during the ceremonial fire with a suggestion box so people could say whether they liked the sculpture where they didn't um, and most most people loved them we had somebody who really um, wanted an indigenous figure which we were so happy with because it kind of gave us permission to, to go down that path um, yeah so so that was that was it so by the ceremonial fire we had a whole lot of information from veterans, from the RSL, from the community about what they wanted and, and then we kind of went from there. That was a very long answer to a short question, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's perfect. It's great. But I'm I'm curious, um for you, Mike, as well, coming into the project at like at the at the burning uh initiation, it's like a, you know, creation by fire of course um what was it like having come into it at that point and documenting the rest of the story what did you learn uh and what excited you about this particular story that you wanted to to carry on telling it well i suppose like i because i know colin you know who was the project initiator and amanda so well already i just knew that whatever they did was going to be interesting and (laughs) There'd be stuff that was visually interesting. But the thing that I, I think surprised me was I thought that the story was going to be about Lee and Hikaru and maybe their friendship. And it actually ended up being a lot more, actually was more about Amanda's um, philosophy of public art, I think. And that, that surprised me. It was a path that I hadn't expected to take. And I think it was incredible to see Amanda sort of connecting. Uh, her philosophy over this project from um, the blacksmith tree to this but there were so many wonderful moments you know we spent a week down in Gippsland um, at a place called Fulham um, with uh, John Brady's another um, chainsaw artist um, at his property uh, where Hikaru carved the um, Aboriginal light horseman and yeah five days of watching that start from you know raw timber to become this you know three-metre-high horse with a, an Aboriginal rider. That was just incredible. Um, and on that being one of the most serendipitous moments of the whole shoot was um, um, when that statue was brought back to... the sculpture was brought back to Melbourne on the back of a truck. It ended up in the, the same factory in Whittlesey where the uh, the blacksmith's tree had been forged. Or is that correct? Forged? Welded, Welded sorry. I always get that wrong. <laughs> it was assembled, yeah. Assembled. Assemble there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I was actually dropping someone off at the airport and I got this phone call from Amanda going, 
you've got to get here with a camera straight away because um, <laughs> we found a light horseman and there just happened to be a fair on across the road at the Whittlesey show and uh, there was a guy in full light horse regalia and his wife, his partner, was um, dressed up as a World War One nurse. So um, I raced back from the airport, got my camera and came out there and the guy arrived, I think, just at about the same time as I did and he, um, as you can see in the film, he backs in next to the sculpture and this was not set up, it was... We just said, why don't you bring the horse in and we'll just see it beside there. And, and so he backed in and it was like it was perfectly staged. But it was all pure serendipity. And he backed in and he looked up at the sculpture and he said, I know that guy. And he knows the grandson or the great-grandson of that light horseman, that Aboriginal light horseman. And um, that was like a goosebump moment where you just went, there are so many threads and community stories here all weaving yeah. themselves together. It's... Um, yeah, it's there were so many wonderful serendipitous moments throughout wow. the, the filming, and it's, um, and I think the story evolved, you know, by itself. It was, I think, you know, you might have a, a preconception of what story you want to tell, but I think the story that wants to be told, you know, finds its way through and, and forces you to tell that story. And I think the strongest story was about Amanda's um, philosophy of public art and the way she's she develops and runs teams in a way that is remarkable mm. yeah I, I appreciate all of that it's really beautiful and it's nice to see that that value of of the public art being appreciated so wonderfully and not only that but also it's Australian history which is being embraced greatly as well and what I love as well is that it's it's not just Australian history being embraced but there's um, because of the, the artists that are chosen there's an international aspect to it there as well with the connection between uh, the Japanese soldiers and Australian soldiers in World, World War One. So in a lot of ways, as you're saying, you know, the story just kind of unfurls by itself and, and the story that wants to be told is the one that's told. And I really appreciate that because there's a lot that... Um, I guess it's a power of documentaries in a way. There's a lot that I, I haven't known about Australian history, uh, which I've learnt a lot through documentaries. And certainly the uh, the Aboriginal soldiers, the light horsemen, is something which I'm not familiar with. So it's nice to see uh, a light being shone on there. Um, were there things that, that you discovered along the way that, that surprised you as well in the history of Australian soldiers? Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> um, do you want to start? You know, you go. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, wow. Uh, okay. Well, look, I'll start with the Indigenous um, Light Horsemen. Um, so I, just to give you a bit of background, Hikaru um, is one of, Master Carver, really great friend of Lee Conkey's and, and a lovely thing for Lee to invite him into, it was Lee's choice to use Hikaru. Um, which I think was genius. Um, Hikaru understands a little bit of English, um, doesn't speak a lot of English, so we mainly communicated with me waving my hands around um, but drawing. <laughs> so um, in order to get... Um, although, although he's very... Um, <laughs> oh, his, his, his technique is very sort of free-form and, and often very suggestive in the uniforms, we still had to make sure that he got... He had the information he needed to get it right. So 
the um, the Shrine of Remembrance opened up after hours for us, and I um, I got um, Lee and Hikaru in there, and they opened up their display cases, and we were able to photograph the um, the Afghanistan uniform and you know various uniforms. Um, <clears throat> they let me come in with the blacksmith um, during a light horse exhibition, and he came in because he's quite his German extraction, very 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 exact. And he came in with his ruler and everything, and he he measured the the width and the thickness of the the leather harness and how big the bit was and um, all of that sort of stuff. So the shrine of remembrance was great, and it just showed me all the little details um, in the uniforms. And we went to Digger Works as well. Um, there was a, a major that um, works at Vic Barracks at Digger Works, and they've got lots of um, uniforms on display. And then I went up to Canberra and um, spent a day with the um, curator of photography there um, just to get some more visual information. So, yeah, visually it was great. The um, the light horsemen, the photographs of the light horsemen were, were quite interesting because they were... They were quite debonair, <laughs> you know. They were they were real heroes, and they really hammed it up for the camera. And I didn't know that. Um, and they were, you know, they were these gorgeous men, and um, just lots of lots of photos of them sort of relaxing in the desert. And <laughs> yeah, it was the the photography was amazing. Um, but then they had a lot of information up in Canberra on on Indigenous servants. And so what I learnt there was. Um, we've had a lot of Indigenous servicemen from the Boer War, particularly Boer War, World War One, um, you know, joining up. It was illegal for them to to enlist, so they had to hide their Aboriginality in order to enlist, um, which makes it really difficult um, historically to find out how many Aboriginal soldiers served because, you know, they, they lied about who they were. Um, the reason they enlisted... I, I think, well, I, I think there were a lot of different reasons, but one of them was they were treated as as part of a team. They were treated as equals. Um, they were treated like everybody else. They had friends there, and of course, when mm. they left, um, then when they left service, um, they were back to being treated really badly in the community. Um, and I think. I, I just think it's extraordinary that, that one, that happened, and two, that sort of sense of duty um, that they had. Um, Can I run in for a second? Yeah. yeah. I just found out the other day someone rang me um, as a result of um, the photo of the light horseman that I, I put on Instagram, and not like an old friend of mine who's actually the son of um, Australian artist Kenneth Jack, and he'd been working on a documentary on light horsemen, and he'd been to the reenactment in Beersheba, and... Um, Anyway, um, what I was going to say, you said that, yeah, so the Lovett family, which was um, related to that Aboriginal light horseman, I think he was the Lovett, is that right? No, no he, no, was, no, he no, wasn't no. actually. Oh, I okay, okay, maybe I'll just tell that story then, if he's oh, related, yeah. Well, but but what, what I was going to say is I just found out that this, this one family, uh, 20 Aboriginal, mm. Aboriginals went to World War One from this one family and served and all came back rem remarkably still intact so none of them died in war, and they came back to find that their land had been taken from them um, by the government, and which is remarkable. And then, of course, the government was handing out free land to returned servicemen, but they weren't giving them out, giving it out to Aboriginal returned servicemen. So they served the country 
and then they were dispossessed of their lands, which was just remarkable. And watched and watched lands being given to mm. other soldiers, but not them. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. I heard that um, in Hamilton, in Victoria, the country town of Victoria, near <laughs> the Grampians, a benevolent society got money together and to buy this family land again. So there's, there's another story there, which would mm. make a great documentary, I think. We found we found three Aboriginal light horsemen from this this sort of area. Um, one of the Lovets was was one, but he's, he's not Wurundjeri, so he's from a different a different tribe. Um, but there was there were two others, and when when I spoke to the, it was great because I got to, I got to go in and meet with um, the Wurundjeri elders. Um, I think we had about three meetings, and to present my design yeah, and to talk, yeah. you know, to ask permission, you know, to say, you know, is this okay? And what we came what we came out with was. The light horseman really couldn't be a particular person. It it had to, you know, he had to look Aboriginal, but not be based on a particular person. So when um, when I spoke to Hikaru about carving his face, I gave him photographs of the three Aboriginal light horsemen, um, and one of them, you know, part Aboriginal, didn't look very Aboriginal. So I had I had some other Aboriginal faces. And luckily we were down at John Brady's and John Brady had carved Aboriginal faces before. So he was able to sort of discuss like the, you know, how the, the look and the structure of the face is, is quite distinct. So, so that face is, is, I guess, a hybrid of various Aboriginal faces, but it does look quite a bit like one of the lovers. And that, that's just by accident. Um, but it was important to the elders that it wasn't, to depict a particular person or a particular story, but it was more to be symbolic. And what they gave me was an Aboriginal legend to illustrate, which I, did, well, I wasn't expecting, <laughs> which was so um, such an honour. Um, so you'll see that the Aboriginal light horseman has a crow on his shoulder and he has feathers down the bottom, the base of his, um, um, of underneath the horse. And the Aboriginal legend, and I don't know whether you've mentioned that in the documentary, yeah, you have, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah so mm. the crow is Wa, who um, has Bunjil the eagle bestowed upon Wa the um, his protective powers, and Wa was to carry those protective powers with him and to protect protect people, and so Wa would have spiritually gone overseas, ridden into battle with these men and and bestowed, made sure that the protective powers of Bunjil were, were, were around them. Um, so we wanted to illustrate Wa as as being part of, you know, part of the light horsemen, but also the feathers illustrate where the power has come from. So I think... Um, I mean, we, we, we're very familiar with Bunjil over here because Bunjil is like, you know, the god here. I think in Western Australia you'll have rainbow serpent and other things, <laughs> but Bunjil is the pinnacle, the absolute pinnacle. So the, the feathers were to suggest that there's a greater power behind, um, behind you know, what Wa is doing there, um, which, was, which was a lovely thing to, to be able to illustrate. So, so we learned a lot about Indigenous service, a, a local beautiful legend of Father Crow. Um, so that's that's just one thing. And you, you'd ask me what else I learned, and I'll just briefly mention. I have to mention the Vietnam veterans because um, 
they were they were extraordinary. I knew that they'd been treated badly. I had no idea of the the depth of the pain um, that they had had felt, and of the the shame and the silencing that went on for decades, and the. Um, they're absolutely adamant that the the more recent veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan are not to go through what they went through. A lot of the issues that those veterans are having, um, because they, these veterans, sort of, a couple of them volunteer in the psych ward at, at um, the Repat Hospital, part of the problems that the particularly the Afghanistan veterans are having is they're not allowed to speak about what happened over there. So they've just got to bottle it up and, and not tell anyone because they're not allowed. And that's um, very, very difficult um, for them. And the, the Vietnam veterans know what that, that difficulty and that torture is like because they, they were similar. I mean, there was one man who said, I've only just recently told my grand, grandchildren I served in Vietnam. They didn't know. Um, the immense amount of shame was incredible. Um, and one of the other magic things that happened is um, my friend Miranda is a graphic novelist and she is doing a graphic novel on Australia um, during the Vietnam War era and, and about you know what was happening at that time. And part of that novel is set in Vietnam, part is set in Melbourne. It's being published by Alan and Unwin, I think, in 2020. She's, um, Miranda Burton. Yeah, Miranda Burton. Um, and I, you know, I was doing this, Home, you know, I was going off to um, breakfast with these Vietnam veterans, you know, every couple, every second Friday. And so I took her along and they loved her and they just talked and talked and talked. And now one of those veterans is a character in her graphic novel um, through, you know, through this project and has connected her with a whole lot of, um, a whole lot of other people. So, um, so she's, through this project, she's learned a lot more about the, the Vietnam War, particularly from the soldiers' point of view, and she's being able to incorporate that in, in what I think is, is quite a groundbreaking book. Mm, that, well, I look forward to reading that then. It sounds very interesting. And certainly what I appreciate the most about the documentary is that, that lineage through time, obviously over 100 years of, of uh, wars and and. The history that Australian soldiers have is embraced so wonderfully with these statues and, and in this particular town as well, I think is really beautiful. So that in itself is just a really honourable thing and I'm, I'm glad that this story is being told and, and being shared out there because, uh, you know, every town in Australia has got their own uh, war stories and things like that and unfortunately, given how big Australia is, it's uh, it's easy to... Uh, not be aware of, of the the you know different stories that are out there. So it's nice to see that you know through this documentary, at least that these different stories and this this history is being explored and being told. Uh, I, I really appreciate that. As as somebody who enjoys films and enjoys Australian history, it's it's nice that this is being uh, maintained and, and kept in. Uh, in history as well so thank you very much for that in itself it's really nice yeah while, while we're talking about the veterans yeah i mean i think um like I, I wrote a bunch of questions that we could ask each each one of the veterans um but amanda actually asked them on the day and and her relationship with the veterans um allowed that process i don't think we would have got the responses 
and the honesty from them if I just asked those questions because I didn't have that relationship with them. I think it was really important that Amanda had spent all that time having those breakfasts and, and building up that trust that she would actually listen to their stories and take them seriously and the mm. writing workshops as well were part of that, um, that predated that. Um, one of the amazing things that, you know, that I cherished from the whole project was um, meeting Ron Cornelius and his wife Ellen um, and he was the World War II veteran um, in the documentary and sadly he passed away like about two months after we interviewed him. So the footage of him and, and Ellen walking the labyrinth at um, Repat Hospital, um, which is that, is that footage with the long shadows um, that we use in that sequence um, with all, mm. all the veteran stories, um, it's, it's taken on a poetic sort of thing for me now. It's, um, uh, Amanda and I went to Ron's funeral and we walked in there and someone had actually taken the footage from a short clip I'd put online and had that playing on screens around the room and that, that was so moving to actually... It was, because yeah. we didn't expect it. We just, you know, walked into this funeral of this beautiful man. He had these fishing rods on his coffin and mm. oh, it was really beautiful. And there was this huge screen, um, two big screens up the front with that, that drone footage of the two of them walking the labyrinth. And you realise also from some of the comments online how much that footage meant to the family. It was, it was just incredible. With, mm. yeah. And then having that opportunity to interview Joel Sardi, you know, the, the Afghan vet mm. veteran as well, and who's, who's now a, a paraplegic. And, um, and he's, through his paraplegia, his body can't regulate temperature. So he was, we were, on a, we were filming on a 35 degree mm. day and we had him sitting in the shade, but he got to this point in the interview where he said, look, I have to go right now because I can't regulate my own temperature. And but he's he's so eloquent and um, and to get that perspective, you know, from someone who's so young as well. Like so, that, I mean, what you're saying about covering almost 100 years of service, um, I think it's that's really important to show all those different perspectives. The the other thing I learnt too is um, I, I think particularly more recent veterans. I found this with the um, RSL. They're really sick about talking about PTSD. Like, they acknowledge it, but it's not all they're about. And we wanted to sort of include some reference to it in the modern combat figures, and they didn't want that. And I totally get that now, um, because I think they're, I think people are over-emphasising it. I mean, it's, I mean, it's a huge problem that needs to be dealt with and discussed, but in, you know, previous wars where PTSD was never discussed, um, or it was called shell shock, but it was never treated. Um, now it's actually become a defining feature of soldiers, and that's actually inaccurate because you kind of, if you're talking about PTSD all the time, you're portraying these men as victims, and and they're not victims. They're actually incredibly physically powerful, intellectually, you know, quite um, incredible. I mean, they're you know they're our best people. They're smart. They're strong. Um, and then all we talk about is PTSD. So it was nice to understand that and and you know depict a very strong, capable soldier in that in that modern combat. Um, and also figure. a female soldier as yeah. well, which is you know yeah, who's also looking very very strong and very you know capable. And so that's mm. that's what that sculpture was about. It was about sort of strength and determination and focus. Um, rather, rather than injury, whereas the Vietnam sculpture really needed to be all about injury because that information had been suppressed. 
so that the physical injury, the nightmares, the you know, all of that had to be had to be expressed. Which is interesting because different theatres of war needed different um, different expressions. And then you've got the, that perspective of the, the the letter, you know, the woman waiting at mm. home with the broken heart, you know, sitting on the park bench, which is a completely different perspective, which you would not not normally see in a traditional war memorial. Um, so look, I think you know Amanda's, you know, vision is you know personalised and you know taken the anonymity out of um, what what could be a cold and distant thing. You know, I mean, you go and see war memorials, and you know, I think Amanda said this, where there's you know a wall with thousands of names, and you you know you can see the scale of it, but you don't have those personal stories. And I think that ability to tell those personal stories through these works is really powerful. Mm. I think there's an expectation of those formal war memorials with the stones and the names and the plaques and, and I think we expect that and there, there's a need for that um, but this is I think remarkable because it's a new type of memorial um, it's a memorial that you can go and touch you know kids go and cuddle the dog um, you know people are having picnics in the area now so it's changed the space so it's much more yeah, it's just a different way of sort of seeing war and understanding it, I think, and that's brought out in the sculptures. The, the other thing is Mike, um, the, the chainsaw carvers just got so used to Mike, they just, I think, you know, I, I think you've, you've just catch, captured a lot of how natural they were because they just, yeah, you're just a very quiet presence, but you were, you were there all the time, and, and they're just like, oh, we're carving, there's Mike. It's like, mm. you know. <laughs> so where a lot of the carving took place was only 10 minutes from my house. So, um, you know, like, I did get some money from Banyal Council to, for this project as part of the tender for, for the sculptures, but it was basically to do about eight days filming over a year, and, and, <laughs> and I did 55, so... <laughs> <laughs> So, um, Very dedicated. Yeah. And they weren't, you know, they weren't all days. You know, a lot of the, I might go down three times in a day. I might go down in the morning and capture something in the morning, like with a caro carving, and then. But he works so fast. You know, I'd go back at lunchtime, and he's almost half done on something. Yeah, and he works. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, but I think you know what Amanda's saying is, I sort of disappeared. I think after a mm. while, I was just you know part of the furniture, and they didn't. Um, didn't notice me there. Yeah, and I think because you'd worked with the blacksmiths on Forge from Fire, they were Roland was really used to you as well. Mm. And he, he he usually is like, Oh, get the camera out of my face but he was so <laughs> used to you, um, mm. that he was yeah, he was quite okay. Yeah, and poor um, poor Roland I think, you know, it says in the in the film, you know, forging those ends to the uh, the park bench and trying to curl that steel on a 35 degree oh, day yeah. in a forge yeah. was like unbelievable. Yeah. Our, our deadlines <laughs> were really crazy and it was to do with um, when Hikaru was available so we couldn't do the metal work until he'd finished the wood you know the wood carving um, and he was we, I mean, we had to install by Remembrance Day and he was still carving in mid-October um, so the third week of October um, and yeah yeah, it was, it was pretty, and it was hot, and it was very hard for Roland to forge. He was a trooper, like, he did an amazing job, but, geez, it was hard. And, and long days, like, you know, 12, 15-hour days in the factory trying to get that harness together for the, the horse. Mm. Yeah. Well, well, that's the other thing I really appreciate as well, is that it's not just a film that's about the, you know, the, the history of... Uh, the military servicemen in Australia, but it's also, you know, a film that that touches on 
the power of creativity and what goes into creating something you know not only uh, yourself Amanda but it's also you know the, the the sculpting and stuff like that like the I was stunned by how surgical the you know the precision is with the actual chainsaws you know in this 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 beautiful wood and they're creating this really detailed sculptures with chainsaws like that just stunned me i have no idea how you get to that level of skill but it's it's i'm in awe <laughs> it's amazing yeah all in awe too he's <laughs> pretty incredible it was a very good choice by um by lee mm. <clears throat> but he studied i mean he i mean that's what he does he travels the world carving and he i mean it's must be terribly hard to make money doing it because you've got to travel the world and um, enter your, the chainsaw carving competitions. And if you don't win, you don't get any money. So you could be, you know, paying for over, you know, for overseas trips and dedicating weeks of your time, and you don't get anything at the end of it. I so think he's in Montana right now. Yeah, I mean, he's, yeah, and, and plus he's got a um, he's got a family in Japan as well. So. Yeah, so yeah, his life is quite quite incredible, actually, quite quite extraordinary. Um, but yeah, we had to sort of fit around his his schedule. Yeah, and, and yeah. there was stages to the to the sculptures. Um, so yeah. Hikaru went. I think he went to South. I think he might have gone to Chile in between. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he he was all over the place. He was back to Japan a couple of times, and he was. I went. He went to the UK for another chainsaw carving championship into Chile, and yeah. But it actually was quite serendipitous again for me because I actually had to have surgery for, for um, two hernias that I got filming another documentary years ago <laughs> and I had two months off where I couldn't film and I couldn't carry a camera so and that actually fitted perfectly in between these two stages so every, everything was um, yeah the confluence of everything just fitted perfectly and you know there's a, um, a thing I've noticed with both of these films Homefront and Forge from Fire the effect that these films have on the chainsaw carvers and the blacksmiths is quite profound and particularly the blacksmiths and the thing is um, the blacksmiths have, have been pottering around I mean the, the chainsaw artists they, they do a lot of demos and displays and, and things like that the, the blacksmiths they do a bit of demos but they, they, they usually just sort of potter around and you know do their things do their stuff in the forge and they don't really talk to many people and they don't often display their work they don't often have exhibitions to have somebody film them the way Mike has um, like really getting into how the fire looks how the hammer blows look um, has actually changed their perspective on their craft and these are men that have been working for decades with steel um, but to see a film play back to them about their work and and to think for, for them to realize for the first time that people are interested in their work that previous to these films, they thought that they, you know, only other blacksmiths would be interested in their work. And because everyone says, oh, blacksmithing, it's about horseshoes, it's a dying art, and they're sick of hearing it. Um, these documentaries um, have shown that people are interested in the finer points of blacksmithing, that people are fascinated by it. And it's changed their views of themselves and their craft. And it's, it's been quite profound, I, I can't tell you. It's just amazing. Well, I think that's the thing is that, you know, unfortunately, as, uh, you know, with these, these beautiful arts and, and things like that, they just, 
they're not embraced in the way that they used to be and and that's a real shame because they are still vital elements of society they are still vital parts of of the world and we need to respect and and applaud the the talent of the people who you know dedicate a life to doing that because you know it's not it's not a hobby you know you can't just pick it up and be like i might you know, give my hand at being a blacksmith today. Uh, you know, you, you dedicate your life to it. As he's saying, you're doing 12, 15 hour days. That's, that's, it's, it's, I don't know. Like that's got to be hard. I, I, I don't have it in me myself, but I'm just, I'm in awe of those who do like, it's, it's great that they're still there. And yeah, as he's saying, these films are a celebration of that. And it's, it's nice to see. It's really beautiful that you're telling their stories and you're giving their stories a venue to be heard and appreciated. I've, I've taken up a heap of your time and I'm, I'm certain that I can talk to you guys all day about your beautiful documentaries. And, and, uh, unfortunately I, 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 as I was saying, I, I haven't seen Forged by Fire yet and I'm very excited to watch that. It's, um, I'm very excited for all of the, the documentaries that I've been watching through the, the, for the documentary film festival. It's been a lot of great stuff. And, and that's what I applaud the festival for doing is showing a lot of Australian stories. I believe that Lyndon's uh, hitting about 50% Australian documentaries for this festival. So there's a lot of uh, Australian stories that, that may go by unpassed, unnoticed and, and things like that. But this documentary film festival is really uh, helping shine a light on that. And so... I've been grateful I've been able to be a part of it, but I'm I'm curious for you guys as well as as you know having two films that are in in the festival. What does that mean for having a venue like this to be able to share your stories and share your films? <laughs> um, I think it's pretty pretty amazing. Um, I know that both Andrew and Micah were so so excited <coughs> when they found out um, they'd been accepted into the festival um it's it really does bring these films to another audience Homefront in particular because we will have you know a little screening for local people um but it just would never get the the audience that this sort of festival can bring the festival will add a new audience to it but i think Homefront is such a gem um and it's been made um they, I mean, they're different films. They're, they're different filmmakers. Although Mike's been involved in Forge from Fire, they've got a really different feel and a different flavour. Um, and I just, our home front is just so magical. And it was never, it was never part of the original plan. <laughs> you know, I love it. It was just, you know, it, it came because Mike was desperate to film the ceremonial fire, <laughs> and and we're like, oh, he's a bit good, isn't he? <laughs> Can he film some more? Um, and you know, it, it, this, so because it was never planned, we'd never planned an audience for it. Um, so this festival is actually giving it the audience that I think it, it really deserves. Thanks for listening to this interview, and hopefully you enjoyed the discussion about the documentary Homefront. If you are interested in your errand in Melbourne, then head over to the website mdff.org.au to purchase tickets and to make sure that you secure your place to catch these great films that are screening at the festival. And if you enjoy what I do, then head over to Facebook and give the page a like, facebook.com forward slash thecurbau, 
Also on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the Curb AU, or just plug it into your app and find us and hit us a like. Also head over to the website, thecurb.com.au, to listen to other interviews for the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival and to read reviews and articles as well. Lots of great stuff going on there, and you can also head over to patreon.com forward slash thecurbau to help out keeping the website running for as little as a dollar a month. Thanks again for listening, guys, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Curb. Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to oscastnetwork.com for details.